On this episode of the Vergecast, Dieter Paul and I talk about everything that happened at Code Conference, including YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki's performance on stage. We go through the Pixel 4 leaks that Google just tweeted out, and Megan Farrakhanesh runs down E3, and we get into what's going on with the new Xbox. That's the Vergecast coming up now. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast for the Vox Media Empire. I have to say, this week was the Code Conference, and the third day of the Code Conference was like a bunch of Vox Media podcasts on stage doing their thing live. Well, they didn't. They didn't ask us because they wanted good shows. Yeah, but I sat there thinking, these people don't know the flagship is here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, I'm Eli. I'm your friend. Dieter Bone is here. Howdy. Paul Miller's here. Hello. I would say we had a like a rip roaring week in news, and it's really funny because last week we did two episodes on Friday because I couldn't figure out how to slam together the YouTube drama with Apple drama. Right. Mm. But this week we're just slamming them together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week was the Code Conference. A bunch of platform executives from YouTube, from Facebook, from Twitter were on stage uh, talking about their content moderation policies, how they're running their platforms. We got we got to talk about that. It was huge. Dieter and I were there. Casey Newton was there. Casey Newton actually interviewed the executives from Instagram and Facebook on stage. So you'll hear that next week as part of the interview episode. We got to talk about that stuff. It was a big deal. Code's always a big deal. Lots to talk about there. And then it was also E3. Uh, and we're going to actually have Megan Farrakhanesh do a little E3 news rundown for us later on in the show. Uh, there was a new Xbox stuff uh, announced, more stadium news. So there's like a lot of that going on. Uh, and then Google just yesterday decided that it would just tweet a picture of Pixel. <laughs> <laughs> I think it felt left out. I got so we, we, the Pixel Four was announced yesterday in a tweet. Uh, Rick Osterlo, mm. uh, the head of hardware at Google, just randomly tweeted without a period at the end. Yes, there's a Pixel Four. <laughs> like the I most casual of all phone launches. That's just amazing. Uh, so we definitely have to talk about that. But yeah. the reason we're, you know, last week we pulled them apart. There was definitely an hour's worth of stuff, if not more. You know, with all of WWC. Uh, and all of the YouTube stuff to to fill that that space and you know tensions aren't high. I think this is just a more, much more normal week of technique. So we're trying them together again this week. If you think it is too jarring and you want me to start splitting these things apart, let me know. Uh, last week was obviously an experiment, and I, I'd love your feedback on on how sort of diffuse you want the I, show to be versus mashed together. They, we, you're saying we should break them up. We should break them up. <laughs> 
if you think we should break up the Vergecast, <laughs> let me know. You know, where I'm, I'm always ready between to for our episodes to compete amongst themselves <laughs> in the market of Vergecast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyhow, let's start with code. The code conference, obviously, one of the the premier tech conferences in the industry. It is indeed run by our our company, Vox Media, uh, but it is it was Walt and Kara's conference. Uh, now it is uh, obviously Walt retired. Kara Swisher and Peter Kafka now run it. Uh, this was a big year. We moved it to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very it was extraordinarily hot in Phoenix, uh, so it was fun because everyone had to like stay in the hotel to not be in the oppressive heat. So we just like ran into a lot of people. It was a lot of fun. But previous years, the Code Conference and before that, the D Conference. Uh, lots of products got launched there. Yeah. Right? Like the Siri, before Apple bought it, launched at Code. Yep. Uh, someone pointed out that Bing launched at Code. Really? Uh, it sure, really? sure did. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite Code uh, launch of all time was uh, a feature for, wait for it, the Palm Pre. This it was the it was the event where they revealed that they were going to hijack iTunes and make it the sync product to get music onto a Palm Pre. Because they, That's they, amazing. They made, they made it pretend like it was an iPod. Immediately got mm. shut down. They found a workaround. Yeah. That got shut down again. It was incredible. How? What's the context? What's the question? What did Kara ask? And then, well, let me tell you <laughs> well, about Well, so this was our, before. So when I say Bing launched at Code, I mean Bing launched at the D conference. When yeah. I say Code, I mean Code and the previous D conference. Yeah. So right, during right. the D conference, during that time, there was not live video streaming, which is a remarkable thing to think about. There was not mm. – like Samsung couldn't just hold a press event and be like, yep, it's a speaker that looks like a grill. Like <laughs> it was like the time before that. So you would get all mm. these fancy reporters in a room and this was your moment outside of like the press conference event world to launch a product. Yep. So they would come there mm. knowing they were going to launch a product, have this interview, and then you know, Walter Kerr would be like, but you want to announce something here today. And they would like go into it. Yeah. Right. Um, so in, in fact, I mean I'm, I just Googled Bing launches at D conference and there's like – you know how we write preview articles about like an Apple event, like what to expect from the Apple event. Yeah, it's yeah. like there's all these articles. It's like Microsoft CEO Bill Ballmer is expected to take the stage and debut Redmond's new search brand. <laughs> it's like amazing. <laughs> Just to think about being in that moment. Like, they're, they're really going to take on Google. Anyhow, that was like, and that has happened in the past. There was some last year. This year, though, very little emphasis on on that side of the tech industry. A massive emphasis on the particularly the big platform companies and their basically their responsibility for what is on their platforms and what people do with all the technology they've built. Um, Steven Sanofsky, who uh, a friend of the show and a frequent rival of ours on Twitter, I guess I think it's fair <laughs> to say, uh, he wrote a good piece about code. Uh, and he's like, the, the thing that is really remarkable is most of these companies have grown up on this stage. Yeah. Right? Like Google was a startup, and Walton Kara brought them onto the stage. Facebook was a startup. One of Mark Zuckerberg's first high-pressure interviews on the code stage in his hoodie, and, he, and Kara put him under such pressure that he had to take his hoodie off because he was, like, sweating so much. <laughs> so it is really remarkable to have been to as many of these conferences and see these companies go from pipsqueak upstarts, startups, to now these, like, dominant players where the – Every single one of them got asked about content moderation policies, about breakups, about regulation. The CEO of Delta got of Delta Airlines was on that stage. He got very mad at me because I I was like, "You're you, you're living this life in reverse. Like we're talking about doing breakups and regulation on the tech industry, 
the airline industry is all about deregulation and consolidation. He was like, the premise of your question is totally wrong. <laughs> uh, so that was like entertaining. Um, but so that was the, that's the context, right? I, I just want to set that up. Like the, this was a very serious edition of the code conference because it was about the responsibilities dominant firms have in our life. And so that's all the wind up to the first person to take the stage was uh, the CEO of YouTube, Susan Wojcicki. A lot of pressure on her. Obviously, a huge controversy last week around YouTube. They rolled out, and this, this is all separate. I think this is all getting conflated, so it bears repeating. A bunch of individual things happened last week that people are conflating. YouTube itself rolled out a new hate speech policy all by yep. itself. They had been working on it for a long time. They briefed Casey on it weeks before because they were like rolling it out. That led to some channels being turned off. There was the Steven Crowder, Carlos Matza harassment just situation, which yeah, was, was really say, bad. Like, I don't know what there, word you would uh, – <laughs> disaster, catastrophe. Yeah. Um, they handled that as poorly as any company can handle anything. Mm -hmm. And then there was a you know just a small pedophilia crisis. Um, <laughs> it's happened. Yeah. Uh, and then Kevin Roos uh, wrote an article in The Times about how the algorithm – just leads to some radicalization, which is something that people have been talking about with YouTube in particular for a very long time. So she was on stage. She, she, I'm going to just say this, Dieter. I'm curious for your your take on it. Uh -huh. But she did a bad job. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. She, look, she – and all credit to Susan. She, first of all, she's a CEO of YouTube. She's been at Google for 20 years. She's successful, right? Like yep. she, she runs a thing that is the dominant – company in its space, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, all credit to her. She, she accomplished that. She showed up, which she did not have to do in the midst of all these crises, and she answered the questions. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's a lot of credit. And I, I think she was extremely genuine. I think she was extremely sincere. Uh, I don't doubt any of that. But I think she did a bad job. And I, walking around the conference talking to folks afterwards, universal – uh, assessment of that performance was yeah. she kind of blew it. But so the the thing to realize, and you can go watch this interview on YouTube right now. Uh, Recode has put up all this stuff pretty much right away. Just because it was like a bad performance doesn't mean it was a bad interview or that it's not worth your time to watch. Uh, yeah. Because her, um, for whatever reason, her uh, inability to like directly answer questions, you know, typically, you know, Executives from companies are very, very rehearsed and very prepped and have, like, answers in their pockets for all the stuff that they expect. And she either didn't have the answer in her pocket or didn't like the answer that was in her pocket. And instead, she um, she was, like, very clearly having a hard time articulating what was actually going on in response to a bunch of questions. One of the, one of the last questions was just a straight-up yes or no. Does, does YouTube, like, radicalize people? And – Instead of saying, you know, there's radicalization in content everywhere or, you know, something, she just said, our view is we're offering a diverse set of content to our users, uh, which is a straight-up refusal to even address the, the premise of the question. And there was just sort of a lot of that. But I will say that the thing that struck me was she's getting asked incredibly hard questions about incredibly difficult issues and – if I were in that position, I would probably be flailing just as much because it may have been, like, not a great performance, but it was sincerely, like, she was being sincere and honest in her inability to articulate answers to the questions is what it seemed like to me. So I I, I, I disagree. Okay. Um, 
And I, I don't disagree sort of with what, like, your assessment, right? <laughs> I, I'm trying to be careful here because I do think she was being sincere, and I do think it is very hard. What I disagree with is I don't think she saw the problem. Ooh. Um, and so I just – I live-tweeted all this. Hold on a second. Let me find the right quote. What is the quote you're looking for? So there's a couple of quotes that I, just made me think she doesn't see the problem. So Peter said, can you get to the point – Peter Kafka interviewed her. So Peter said, can you get to the point where there isn't a bad story about YouTube almost weekly? And Susan said, at the, po- at the scale we're at, there's always people who want to write negative stories. <laughs> And this isn't that, right? Yeah. By the way, Peter's response to this was great. He said, if I ran a business where people were dumping that much sludge on my platform, I'd seriously rethink what I'm doing. Um, but that's, you know, that's like the point of code is to like have this back and forth. Yeah. But if you're, if, you look, if you're looking at this and you're saying people are selectively choosing only negative stories because we're so big and you can always find one, then you're missing, I think, the core of the problem, which is you're being constantly hijacked. Right, There are bad faith actors on your platform who have gamed your algorithm, who know how to play the game better than you, who are extraordinarily good at walking up right to the bleeding edge of your rules and forcing you to be in a position where you have to apologize for being consistent and, and getting to the wrong outcome over and over and over again because they're in bad faith hijacking your rules. You are constantly wandering into a debate about free speech that you shouldn't be having because you're a private company. And you're you're basically putting your gigantic dominant company in a position where it is reacting, right? If you yeah. don't see the problem, you are always reactive to the problems other people are creating. And then you're saying, well, people are always going to write negative stories. That's not the issue. So the possibility exists that she sees the problem exactly the way that you described it, but has no solution. And it's better to not acknowledge the problem if you don't have a solution than to just flat out admit, I have no idea how to fix this because fundamentally we want, you know, people to be able to upload videos without us, you know, looking at every single one because of course they do, right? Yeah. And then so she had another answer. She said, anytime you have a bunch of creators and people who are upset, it's difficult. This week we managed to upset everybody. It's on an easy job. It's a tough job. But I'm encouraged about the stories I hear about people using YouTube for good things. Right. I think what people are looking for from the leader of YouTube is not this admission of how hard it is, not this half apology for offending LBGTQ people or seeming like they're sorry, they're sorry that they're upset, but we've got to be consistent. They're looking for this company to have values, right, and to be able to, to declare what those values are and to say, if you're going to participate in our platform, here are the rules that we're making. And we're not, this isn't necessarily about political speech. It's about being good to each other. And we're going to enforce those rules. And instead, we're lost in this like legal morass of how do we write the rule so it can, it can cover beauty influencers and how-to people and, and comedians and real political actors. Like, you cannot write that rule. Yeah, and if if you and if you want like that rule, the way that rule really looks is like the First Amendment in the United States, right? Like that's the, the you're a country, you're trying to write a country that can cover everything, but then inside of the country, you have lots of other places that make their own rules. Right. In our workplace, there are rules about what you can or cannot say. In your it, people listening to this, in your workplace, there are probably some code of conduct guidelines or some employee guidelines about what you can say in your workplace. If you want to go on broadcast television. I assure you, ABC and CBS and NBC have guidelines about what you can can or cannot say on their platform. Anywhere you go. So 
that's how we usually do. We cut it into discrete pieces and say, this is what you're allowed to do in these spaces. YouTube is trying to create one rule for everybody without any acknowledgement of the spaces people are in. For YouTube to be the dominant, like the video platform, just the only place where you put video basically on the internet, um, other than like a walled garden of like Netflix or something, how big of a percentage of people who want to make videos can they ostracize before they are no longer YouTube anymore? There's something different. I think that's an amazing question. I wish I'd, I, the question I wish I'd asked um, was, I'm mad at you and I want to go somewhere else. Where do I go that scares you? Right? <laughs> it's not Vimeo. <laughs> like, <laughs> we got a very nice note from someone that said Vox Media should go to Vimeo. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a huge number of people. And I think the network effect of YouTube, the reach it can provide you if you're on their platform is so big. And I honestly, I just honestly think, again, to her credit, I do not want to di like disparage the obvious accomplishment. YouTube is the thing that it is. She has mm -hmm. managed it to this place. Yep. That is an enormous accomplishment. Great. She's been there for 20 years, right? Like, do you see the problem from the, do you have the distance from the problem to identify it at this point in time? Isn't, to me, what this interview reflected. And I think everybody should go watch it and you can decide for themselves. But it felt like she didn't, she had she didn't have a handle on it. I, the the way I see it is that there's a, a set of videos that's on YouTube that I didn't have a problem that with the the large percentage of them being on YouTube, right? And there is a large group of people who are loudly advocating for a lot fewer videos to be on YouTube. And so it seems natural that YouTube's position is like, well, the current set of videos is what we think is appropriate because we allowed them in the first place. So of course they abide by our guidelines. So it seems like a, a change in policy is being advocated for from, from people like Vox. Sure. I'm gonna quote this, I'm gonna quote the CEO of Delta and say that I reject the premise of your question. Okay, it, it is YouTube being asked to change dramatically is what I'm I'm saying. So I, I again I learned this from the CEO of Delta. I can just angrily say I reject the premise of your question to avoid answering. <laughs> That's great. That's um, good. No, but I, I will actually answer your question. I, the thing that I, I disagree with fundamentally is mm -hmm. that there is any such thing as the current set of YouTube videos, right? YouTube, it's like a billion hours a, an hour or whatever gets uploaded to YouTube. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. the ever-changing nature of that content library is impossible to manage. It is even impossible to understand what's on YouTube, right? Like the first thing it is, she even said this, is like this is a, this is a search engine. Like we're mm -hmm. an information service. So like they're pulling in all this stuff and they have to index it. And so like mm -hmm. there isn't some fixed set of the things that were okay yesterday and today, between now and tomorrow and the next day, YouTube will like double in size, right? That curve is accelerating. So, right, like I get what you're saying. I just, I think the first problem is just managing the inflow of content. Mm -hmm. You can't hold them to that standard. You can't say they've already looked at everything and said it was okay. And now we're changing mm -hmm. the rule. They have definitely not looked at everything. And with every day that passes, their ability to look at everything falls even farther. Right. So as a user of YouTube, I use YouTube to find videos that I've never seen before or I have seen before. And and some of the videos that I've never seen before are new videos. But there, there's a large set of old videos. Some of them I've seen, some of them I haven't seen. As a user of YouTube, I expect that library to continue to exist. 
because I want to go back to those videos. If I was worried that those videos would stop existing, like my favorite ones, um, then I would like download like backups or something like that. And then as for new videos, those new videos will exist if people think that they can build a career on YouTube. But if people are uncertain of whether either YouTube is willing to monetize individual creators or whether YouTube is a moving target and therefore what might be okay today is not okay tomorrow, then that's disincentivizing creators. Therefore, I, as a viewer, might have fewer reasons to tune into YouTube because fewer creators are drawn to YouTube. And what I would say to you is, yes, in a functional market with many competitors, uh, <laughs> some of these people would go other places. But we don't have that thing. We have YouTube. Yeah. We have this, we have this monopoly on user-generated video. This is where they are. All those people could go to IGTV tomorrow. They're not doing it. I don't know why. All those people could go to Vimeo tomorrow. They're not doing it. I don't know why. They could all start posting their videos to Twitter. They're not doing it. I don't know why. YouTube is the place where they are. And there's a mil they could all go to Facebook Watch. Enjoy that problem. Of but, use, right? like, but YouTube still, if YouTube stopped running, right? <laughs> well, imagine a weird world where all of Google services go down for like a day or something like that, <laughs> right? China. Imagine yeah. would China. at some point actually do something else, right? If YouTube completely failed to be YouTube, yeah, there would uh, eventually uh, an alternative would emerge, uh, presumably, and right. And I think what you're saying is there's enough people who are upset that such an alternative. It seems natural that such an alternative would exist. Or is YouTube such a lost leader that they're just basically hosting everybody's videos at a, at an incredible? Loss. Yeah. Actually, when uh, Google tweeted out the Pixel last night, Mark Bergen, who's the great Google reporter at Bloomberg, responded with, now do YouTube revenue. Because <laughs> they don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. So, Paul, like, I, I get what you're saying. Like, the, it, it, to very directly answer your question about what Vox is advocating for. And our publisher, full transparency, Carlos Mazzo works here. He's our colleague. We, we're not, like, hanging out every day, but he certainly works here. Our publisher has written, written a letter to YouTube. Uh, the Vox.com team wrote an open letter to other YouTube creators. What they are asking for very directly is for YouTube to just enforce the policies it has, right? There are policies against attacking other people. There are policies against inciting harassment. There are policies against using hurtful language. Uh, and they didn't do it this time. And yeah. Susan's answer was, we feel very sorry about that, but we have to be consistent because, you know, if we start taking this down, the next thing we'll do is we'll take down rap music videos, Right, or the next thing we'll take, we'll, we'll find some other thing to take down. That answer is troublesome, right? It, it speaks to, I think, a, a very foolish kind of consistency. Like, yes, that's true. Like, many songs contain difficult language, like, sure, but they're not, I don't think they're the same thing, right? And this is what I, what I just keep coming back to is, the rules for what you get to play on MTV and what you get to put on CNN are, are different. Like, we instinctively understand that they're different. We instinctively understand that different spaces in our society have different rules inside of mm -hmm. the umbrella of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And, by the way, the First Amendment does not even apply to pr private corporations, and YouTube is obviously okay, okay. a private corporation. Can I, can so I like, just say – I know I say this like a hundred times every – there. There's a free speech as a concept and ideal, and there's free speech as a law in the First Amendment, right? Well, sure, but like, okay, I just I want to make sure that that's clear. People, people, I, people hear the term free speech and they're like, oh, well, you're talking about the First Amendment. That just applies to limit the what the federal government can do. Yeah, you know, like because that's what. It, that, but, but that's, <laughs> but that's only, not what free speech as a concept is. Okay, what is free speech as a concept? 
it's an ethic. It's an idea that that you have freedom to speak. Right. And I, I just like that is true. Sure. And so and and so so someone was like, ah, free speech. That sounds like a good idea. Let's make a law that enshrines that in the constitution of this specific government. But it doesn't mean it stops also still being an no, ethic. No, it, it absolutely means it stops there, right? Like it doesn't stop being an no, ethic, no, but I'm, like the I'm law it's, is very clear on who it relates to. The first word is it, Congress. Yes, yes, it's clear what what the limits of the law are. I'm saying that the the it, the ethic does not cease to exist just because it has one concrete implementation. Let's say I started another country and I'm like, what, what ethic should I base my speech policies yeah. on? Yeah. You know I, what I mean? I could so base Paul, I said, what you're saying here is like murder is bad. We made it. So we made a law against it. If the law yeah. went away, murder would still be bad. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank okay. you. Sure, I'm but, sorry that I was poor at explaining. I'm really glad you were here. <laughs> it's true. I, I think we can all agree for once on a policy principle at the Vert Chats, which is that murder is bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, unless, it's, unless it's your thirst and you need a can of can water. Murder, yeah, it's true. <laughs> this is horrible. I'm not plugging that. I mean, I had a good time drinking liquid death, but I'm not plugging it. Anyway, Paul, I think the disagreement I have with you is that the prohibition against murder is like you're prevented from doing it. And the ethic of free speech is something that you are required to provide. And like we, I am not as an employer, like I'm a bunch of people's boss. I don't have to provide them free speech in my office. I, we actually actively constrain like people into being kind to each other in our workplace. That's a thing that we ask employees of Vox Media to do. Google can do that as much as it wants, right? That's in, in fact, their ability to moderate their platform uh, is another expression of free speech. They get to choose what they distribute. So the, mm. it's very thorny, right? But the the law applies to the government because it is more dangerous for the government to constrain your speech than uh, a private company because presumably you can go to a competitor. If you don't like <laughs> it, you can leave, right? Yeah. And so we can't tell the difference between Google and the government. They just keep coming back to it. We're confused. We feel like we can't leave them. So we should apply the law to the government because we can't leave the government. Right, like it's not something you're gonna do. Like you can threaten to move to Canada, but then you live in Canada. <laughs> Canada's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you know what I mean. Like you, you feel like you can't leave, so you're trapped. So you should be held to this higher standard. Yeah. And I feel like okay, if you're gonna be in that position, if you're gonna be the CEO of the thing that feels like the government, your job is to be forceful. Your job is to be the leader. And I, I just, I do not think. That Susan Wojcicki demonstrated those calls. I think fundamentally the substance of what she said, and you should go watch this interview and tell me if you disagree because I'm, I'm curious. The substance of what she was saying was exactly the same as the substance as Adam Masseri and uh, Boz from, from Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. We have policies. We enforce them. We change them. We try to be consistent. It's so hard. They were just more confident. So people are like, they did a good job. Vijagade, who's Twitter's general counsel, was on stage being interviewed. Um, same questions, same incredibly hard questions, same yep. answers. How do you enforce mm -hmm. – Vidya came off incredible. Like she did a yep. great job being like, this is hard. We make rules. We get it wrong. Here's how we're going to deal with the president. Like those are hard questions. People yep. walked away being like, Twitter's got it sorted. They In know fact, what they're doing. One of the reasons like, she came I off so thinking, well – one of the reasons she came off so well is because her CEO, Jack Dorsey, has been doing a terrible job of explaining. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, finally somebody – yeah. But everyone, like, when you know, this conference ends, everyone goes out, they're, like, eating lunch or whatever, we're talking about it. 
And everyone's like, she did great. I'm like, but Twitter is bad. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's, it's incredible to, to say, like, he, this executive did a better job of articulating how content moderation should work. Twitter has exactly the same problems. Facebook has exactly the same problems. I watched that Joe Rogan episode she was on. I disagreed with probably 95% of the words that came out of her mouth, but I still thought she did an amazing job. Right, she, and I, and that's just, it's literally like a leadership thing. I don't want to, mm. and again, like, can you look at YouTube and be like, this is a massively successful business that dominates the category it's in. She obviously mm. has done a good job of managing it. But mm. in this moment, the job, the, the, the ground has shifted to no longer manage a tech product or a revenue product or whatever the thing is a mm -hmm. publishing platform, a video hosting service, the responsibility is like, I'm now the arbiter of speech and video form for the world, <laughs> right? Like yep. that's the job. And I, I just think some people see that problem and some people don't. Mm. What did you guys think of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the, the new Twitter rules. Yeah. So if you, if you look, Twitter tweeted out the rules, they like rewrote them to make them simpler. There's like links to more. Basically, same rules. The thing that got me that always, 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 always makes me laugh is that uh, Kayvon was on stage. He's a head of product at Twitter. And he's like, we're doing a good job. Uh, we've made our rules human readable. Right. And this just <laughs> implies to me that like, lawyers are not humans. Like, <laughs> it's true. I, I have, I have a, a longstanding theory that if you, if you ran, I don't think you'd get elected, but were you to be elected on the, the platform of word count, my only job in in the, the the Congress will be to shorten laws. Like they can all have the exact same content, but I want them shorter, more concise. I'm a big proponent. Maybe. I mean, our country has been around for a long time. There's a great Twitter account called The Crime a Day. It just lists all the things that you can become a federal felon for. Yeah. <laughs> you actually just turn into a book called How to Be a Felon, and it's like the most insane stuff. I think we all forget that like, a bunch of stuff happened between, like, the Constitution and now, and we've actually like, right? Like, it doesn't mean we, we've actually to, created a lot of stuff along the it way. Doesn't mean every bill has to be like a hundred thousand words. But, the, but I, I guess, and I guess part of it is that I read those Twitter rules and I felt like these are very straightforward. These are are, are very easy to understand, and I also feel like. Let, you know, let's say this, this, they included a rule that said, and no Paul Millers. Like I, I follow another <laughs> Paul Miller on Twitter. I know there's multiple of us, right? No Paul Millers. It would feel capricious, but at the same time, it's like, I understand. I get yeah. it. It's right there in the rules. They said up front, I can't, I mean, I can't be on Twitter. That's like, if you, what was it? There's some service from back in the day, like Slashdot or Fark mm. or whatever. And the rule, the first rule is like, don't be a jerk. Yeah. Mm. Right. And like, <laughs> that's little... like it. It just gets to cover everything else. And we're going to sure. make decisions on that. Right. And like, well, I just think what the thing that is dangerous here, and mm. it is a real danger, is that every user of the internet is becoming a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is like, ha has these like grand thoughts about how the law intersects with their ethics, with the dominance of the platforms. I don't think that's what you want like a functional society to look like, that we're, we're constantly having legal debates about the services we use, that we're mm. constantly flooded with terms of service agreements that no one can read, with privacy policies that are insanely complicated. There's a great New York Times uh, data visualization uh, this week where they just like 
ran a bunch of privacy policies through like a readability scanner that plotted them at like grade level and sentence length. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like like literally I think it's it's only Kant was like more complicated <laughs> than an average <laughs> privacy policy. Um and like Ulysses is like less complicated than many privacy like that's crazy. That's a it's a that situation I think is untenable. And it's yes, I think it is extremely bad that this apology from Susan Wojcicki to uh, the gay community on her platform didn't feel sincere, even though she she wanted it to. Yeah, it is a problem that employees at Google um, in that community are super upset and feel like their, their company doesn't take them seriously. That's all real, and I we should not discount it or set it aside. But I think the bigger, the biggest problem is that everyone feels powerless with these companies, and they we we are beginning to treat them like the government. We are beginning to treat their rules with the same sort of standards and scrutiny as we would apply to like, how should the government write laws? Like should, oh, should all mm-hmm. the laws in America be tweet length is like a ridiculous place <laughs> to have arrived. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yes, they should. Sure. And like, that's great, but that's, a, that's not our podcast where we usually talk about like SSD cards. <laughs> right? And like, that's just where we are. And I, I think that's, mm-hmm. that was a lot of code. Right. Yeah. And we can go to, we will run the full Casey interview with um, Masseri and Boz because it was really interesting. And Boz said that people love the Facebook portal and they're putting out new form factors and all that happened. And we'll run that whole thing on Tuesday. But, you know, you, you go through it and we listen to them and we listen to Twitter. Ev Williams from Medium was on stage. I asked him, what are your content moderation policies? It is true. They all have different policies. They all have different ideas about how they should function as platforms open to the public. Mm-hmm. That should be real, right? Like, you should be able to start a, a company that does user generated content and decide what you're gonna what you're gonna distribute. It's weird for us to start to demand that everybody lives up to the exact same rule. Like that is actually not a great market principle. That's not even a great ethical principle. So it's it's just a weird moment where it feels like there's so little competition that we're we're starting to make unhealthy demands of the market. Susan actually people really criticized her for this answer. I thought it was super genuine. Peter was like, well, what happens if they break up YouTube from Google? And she goes, well, it's been a really long week. I've been really focused on other things. We'll deal with it if it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And like, yes, like the criticism I heard of code was like, you're the CEO of YouTube. You're a billionaire. You got to be prepared for that question. Yeah. But I thought it was just like very genuine. Like there's so like the world is on fire right now. Like I will deal with that crash when it occurs to me. Like I get it. But I think that amount of pressure, you can you could just see it. That amount of pressure to be the arbiter of speech in the world that is distributed in video form is maybe not appropriate. And so all the other companies had to answer the breakup question, right? So Facebook's answer, which is their answer, I think I think it was Boz who gave it. No, it was Masseri. So Facebook's answer to should we break up Facebook? You know, Adam Masseri is like, look, there are more people working on privacy and security and election interference at Facebook than work at Instagram. Right. So if you break us up, like I don't get that benefit of scale anymore. He said the first promise he made when he took over Instagram was he wouldn't like screw with it, and he immediately broke the promise when it came to like election interference and like security. And he said they were upset with me, but that's a huge resource that I need to use. So that's like one argument for scale. Like you shouldn't break us up because we have the scale. Nobody asked Twitter about breaking them up because what you what would you break them up into? Like more tweets, moments. Um, oh wait, <laughs> moments. no, break them up and like they break off Vine, which doesn't exist, and then they're forced to you know. <laughs> Fund it, <laughs> bring it back. Think about yeah. it. Yeah. 
Uh, Andy Jassy who runs AWS was asked about breakups. He also said sort of a non-answer. Yeah. I mean, it's just like that's the moment we were in, and I think that moment is not so much a reflection of just anger. It's a reflection of like helplessness. Like we don't, we can't go somewhere else. So like we might, we have to like take some action. And I, I, I feel it on both. I really do feel it on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, my I, my per personal goal is increasingly becoming like trying to to not feel as helpless with these platforms. Like I want to host my own podcast and not um, use SoundCloud, or I want to host my own blog and not even use WordPress. Like I'll I'll make it myself. Like it, it's uh, almost like using technology to make like hand tools to make my own like mini platform. Yeah, and I can I can succeed at that because I don't have all the complexity of scale. So maybe I can create my own stuff and publish my own stuff. Uh, I can't quite host my own stuff yet, but I could get pretty close to, yeah. to, to recreating most of what I need these other services for. But nobody's actually going <laughs> to <gonna> follow me because <laughs> yeah, RSS mean, is dead. <laughs> well, there's that. I mean, there's two, there's two things. One, yes, you can, you can do that and you should. That's pretty complicated for most people, right? So you like you lose this democracy of access and like little d democracy. Like you lose this democracy of access. Yeah. Like if you're a musician, do you have to learn how to host an audio file in order to publish your work? Like there's some value to the platform existing, right? Right. But like not if it like if you're a musician, like. 10 years ago, do you have to learn how to burn CDs and like apply like stickers or? You I think know a lot I mean? of musicians like, 10 years ago didn't know how to burn CDs. You, you think Bono knows how to burn a CD? No, no. By the way, I would pay money to watch Bono burn a CD. If, if you've got a big, swanky, big, yeah, yeah. big city publisher, you know, that, that like <laughs> puts your music out on the, on the, on the big, in yeah, the big yeah, yeah. times. I just love it's that. It's friends with Billboard, you know? Yeah. Then go ahead, do that. But if you don't have access to a platform, right, you're burning CDs yourself, you know? Or I, like, I, I had a band and, like, I called somebody on the phone, like, we're going to make 100 CDs and yeah. here's, here's, like, the JPEG, you know? And, and uh, how many times did your band uh, reach the success of Old Town Road? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's just, like, a, a kid, he like bought a sample. He he bought, he really did just like buy a sample, buy a beat, and then like made mm -hmm. that song. And now he's a worldwide phenomenon because of mm -hmm. two different platforms. So there's like there's just a democracy of access that comes with the existence of these platforms. They simplify. I mean, this is technology, right? Like, in order to take a photo when I was a kid, you had to like know how to operate a camera and develop it. I mean, I didn't grow up in the 1800s, but you understand what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and if you wanted to be a good photographer, you had to increasingly raise your skill set. Now you just like, it's like part of your phone. Like you just like get it for free. Right. And Instagram exists and like the world can see your photos and you can build a business selling crystals. And honestly, we should stop it. But the point I'm trying to make is there's an enormous amount of value to these platforms that are a democracy of access or a democracy of creation or a democracy of distribution. What obligations do they have when their network effects turn them into monopolies is I don't think anyone is doing a great job of answering that question well because there's not competition. Yeah. If there was if there was one great competitor YouTube that was like our rules are a little bit more relaxed and we're gonna compete on that front, like maybe this would look different. But right now there isn't. There isn't a great competitor to Facebook, but there was, but they bought them. And, yeah, and then, twice. And, then, and they bought the other one. <laughs> so. Friendster? Yeah. Anyhow, we should wrap we've been going for way long on this. Um 
Yeah, we are. We're going to play some ads. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the Pixel phone. We're just going to do that in this episode. It's going to happen. Here we go. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, we're back. Dieter. Yeah. Hard, hard shift. Hard left turn. Into, into phone leaks land. Let's say, let's say you had a collection of sensors. Hard and you're trying to figure out an optimal way to arrange them <laughs> to, to fit inside of a, of a shape. Yeah. What, what, what shape do you choose? Uh, I, w- I would choose a square. Oh. Or maybe a rectangle. <laughs> So walk us okay. through the chronology. Here's the chronology. Yeah. What about a squircle? We <laughs> we knew that they're like they're gonna Google's gonna release the Pixel Four in October, and so every year like you like start to see the you know the cadence of rumors begin. This year started a little bit differently than usual because we got this like Unbox Therapy got this metal slug <laughs> that was like the shape of the phone for that case manufacturers use to design their cases. You usually see cases first. You just start to see some features. So all this stuff started just ramping up a little bit this week. Uh, you know, I wrote the story that, like, all this stuff is ramping up this week. And here's this rumor about Project Soli, which is amazing, that they might include a radar in a phone so that you can do gesture controls in space, um, which I don't know if anybody wants because we've tried it before and it sucks. Anyway, like, I, just, I was just ready for that to be what, you know, the next three to six months look like, just – Rumors piling up and building a picture. And then Made by Google just tweeted a picture of it. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. here it is. Yep. There's a square camera module. There's no fingerprint sensor on the back. It's no longer, you know, matte, glossy two-tone. Uh, just we can't wait to see. We can't wait till you see what it can do, I think, was their line. And then we're, you just all sort of went, huh. They confirmed yep. it was the Pixel 4 uh, to me an email. And then Rick Osterlo tweeted, yes, we're making a Pixel 4. Yeah, there the, was a leak the of the silliest a, confirmation yeah. of all time. Like, yeah. are you were you going to stop? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the thing today, the day we're recording, um, uh, Evan Blast tweeted uh, Verizon's planned roadmap for the rest of the year, and it looks like they're planning on the Pixel Four happening in October again after the iPhone 11. Which means that you know it does just because we saw the leak doesn't mean they're going to surprise us by releasing the thing next week. And there's just a lot to like think through. 
Google just tweeted a photo of their phone that they're going to release, you know, in five months or three months or however long October is from now. Time has no meaning. So I think we can assume the fingerprint sensor will be under the display. I do not think we can assume that because there have been really? many, many rumors that Android Q has code for a uh, improved uh, face unlock. Uh, not the junk that Google's had since, like, the, the Galaxy Nexus. In addition to getting the metal slug, Lou over at Unbox Therapy says that he has heard that the top of the, the Pixel 4 uh, will not have a notch. Instead, they need that entire forehead area because they're going to have, like, five different sensors up there. They're going to have a couple of cameras, and then they're going to have maybe a depth sensor, and then maybe that's where the Project Soli is going to go. And, you know, they'll have some other random crap up there. And you don't need that many sensors unless you're going to do face unlock. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like face ID on my on my iPhone. There's nothing about... The only time I like this is better than a fingerprint sensor uh-huh. is when it does the password autofill for me. Oh. Which feels mm. like that it's just like so extremely seamless and magic. For me, it's the ability to set my notifications to be private by default and they only unlock when I look at it. They only appear when I look at it. On the on an Android, like if you set your notifications to not be, you know, visible on your lock screen or, you know, be private on your lock screen, you have to unlock the phone. By the time you've unlocked your phone, you're in like a different space. Yeah. And that's annoying. So I would prefer some sort of face unlock solution myself. Well, maybe it's there. So Could be there. okay, can assume fingerprint sensor removal means fingerprint sensor under the glass. Yep. The four little things in the camera square. Is that, is that what we're going to call it? The camera? Yeah. The camera square. What's a name for a raised square? Uh, the mesa? Camera. The camera mesa. Although no, mesas are usually round. Not a cylinder. Round. Cube? The camera cube. Yeah. That's it. Uh, so there's two lenses, a two-tone flash, uh, another hole, which could be microphone, and another hole, which uh, is either uh, you know a spectral sensor, which is what's on the Pixel 3, or they could do time of flight, or it could be something we haven't thought of. So they can do portrait mode probably better if they do time of flight. They can probably get a new night sight a lot better. Like, doesn't the Huawei phone use its time of flight to, like, help with its low light in some way? Yeah, possibly. I'm not, I'm not super sure. But the other question is, like, is the second lens going to be ultra-wide or telephoto? Which, like, which way do they go there? Because companies mm-hmm. have been experimenting with both. I think you go ultra-wide on the, on the front and telephoto on the back. Yeah. So there's not enough room in here to do, like, a periscope? <laughs> there could be. Who knows? Like the Huawei style. Yeah. It's totally possible. It could. They could be doing. I mean, it is. A, maybe they'll do like a like a spiral periscope because that's that's why the 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 mesa the, the cube is so the big. mesa. <laughs> <laughs> the cube um, has to, it, the camera cue with a cube. I think is important. Oh well. yeah, there you go. So Dieter, you wrote a piece being like, "This is a reboot of leak culture. They really raise the stakes for themselves." Explain that theory. So I, you know, I, I just gave the timeline of how leaks go. Uh, Google decided to disrupt that. And I think it raises the stakes for them because, like, they're directly participating in the hype cycle. It does some clever things like next time I want to write up about a Pixel 4 leak, I get to use a good image that Google made instead of, you know, whatever crap render was the last leak. So that's clever. Mm. But if they're going to participate in the hype cycle this early in this way, then they need to live up to that. And I think this is a year for them to actually do that and actually try and sell pixels in volume because – uh, they're selling the Pixel 3a, so that creates space to let them make the Pixel 4 more expensive. They are selling across every major carrier in the U.S. right now, minus AT&T. I think AT&T will probably come on board for the Pixel 4, so they're going to be on every carrier. They're going to be on every carrier the month after the iPhone 11 comes out. So if they want actual support from every carrier, they 
need it to be comp- you know comparable to the iPhone 11 in terms of its hardware quality. So I think that they have set themselves up to hit higher expectations than we have typically had for Pixel phones. It sounds like that you you think they're going more flagshipy yeah. than the three. I think they have to. Uh, I think if they if they don't after this tease. There's just everyone will be very mad at them. Can you name a scenario other than I'm cooking and I have like chicken on my hands? Uh-huh. Where are you solely? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why do I use a phone radar? Uh, what I don't know. Gesture? You, do you, I need you? Your screen isn't on, and you want to go next track, and you wave your hand over it real quick. I don't know. Mm. The, again, I'm I'm very skeptical that. Um, there's a lot of particularly in interesting use cases for this, but I don't know what Google is thinking. I do know mm-hmm. that when I tried Soli four years ago, it worked super well. Like I was just like like rub your your thumb and your forefinger together like you're like rolling up a like a wrapper or something into a little tube, mm-hmm. like just little tiny movements, and it's able to to detect those movements. So mm-hmm. it can do really fine grained control. What they're going to use that for, I have no idea. The rumor, again, from uh, XDA found some stuff in the code, is there were media controls. They found, I think, skip and pause. Here's what I, I mean, I buy your explanation. Like, it's great to get out ahead of the hype cycle. It's Mm -hmm. great to make people, right? Like, every article about the iPhone now also is like, Google has confirmed the Pixel 4 is coming. Yep. We we see its square camera bump too, right? Great. They've accomplished that. I think this is also just like a quiet admission that they don't sell enough Pixel 3s for drastically diminished Pixel 3 sales to fall. Like, yep. they're going to go from, like, five a week to to four, yeah. you know, like, whatever. Well, the Osborne like, effect is traditionally why people don't announce, don't pre-announce stuff too far ahead. They don't want to kill sales of the current product. No one is buying Pixel 3 <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that's why you do it. You're like, okay, well, how about the next one? You yeah. know that one? Yeah. Like, I do think this is the first one, right? They, they basically acquired the entire HTC phone team. Yep. This is very much the first one that that team is making where the Pixel 3 was sort of a, a holdover. Yeah. So I, I have some excitement there. You, you kind of see why there'd be some pride there. Google tells me that the Pixel 3a was the first one that was basically soup to nuts made by the Taiwan team, as they call them, and that the this Pixel 4 will be the first flagship made by that team. Uh, but they have okay. contributed to previous phones. Where the line is between, like, who made the phone and who, like, didn't make the phone is – so much fuzzier with Pixel phones and Nexus phones before them than it is yeah. with iPhones, right? Um, or even, you know, other Android phones. It's like, yeah, who made it? Google made it. Well, Google made it, but Foxconn kind of made it, right? Or Google made it, but HTC kind of made it, right? So I don't know, man. They do need to justify that purchase, though. They they should make something yeah. good. They should make something good. I do think you're right that they're going to price it high and make it premium. Yeah, they have that's to. Where they need to yeah. That's where they need to play in the U.S. market. By the way, can I offer a quick Foxconn update? Just because oh you said Foxconn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just in case you're wondering, <laughs> Foxconn has still not issued a statement or correction about its empty buildings in Wisconsin to us. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been, I believe, over 60 days at this point. But uh, they did announce that they will now be making uh, computer servers, automotive equipment, and something else uh, in their factory, which okay. doesn't exist. It's just so in case you're tracking, they went from really big LCDs, uh, AI, AK, 5G, to different <laughs> LCDs, uh, to computer servers. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where we we're at, is what are some other words we can say about things we can build? Uh, so we'll see what happens. Anyway, sorry, you just said it. I forgot. I forgot to put it in our rundown. So it's on my mind. I think about the Wisconsin Fox Hunt factory every day. <laughs> they, really, uh, they really got they got your number. I mean, it's like, 
My mom's complaining about traffic every time I talk to her. It's like hard to forget. Neely, what do you uh, think they're actually going to build in that factory? We just ran a big report last week. Josh Jezza, a reporter on the beat. Wisconsin like needs that deal to work. Yeah. It's a Democrat or Republican, whoever. They've already spent so much money on like roads and pipes and like water diversions and they've kicked people out of their houses. Like they gotta do something. They've already put forth a lot of money. But they're now at the point where Foxconn is so far behind its own hiring curve that the contract doesn't make sense for Wisconsin either. So, like, Foxconn, in order to get – I'm going to get these numbers wrong. But in order to get uh, their first set of tax credits last year, they needed to employ, like, 500 people. And they proudly announced that they employed, like, 200-some people. And then they filed their actual documents with the Economic Development Corporation there, and it was only 150. <laughs> so they, they lied, but they didn't even lie enough like they didn't even like tell the right lie, uh, so they're like way behind this hiring curve that gets in the tax benefits. You should just read that piece; it's very complicated. But basically, it seems like they're going to cruise towards renegotiating the deal so that it actually pays off for Wisconsin. And right. I think both sides of the table are are interested in such a thing because Foxconn is they don't they can't employ thirteen thousand people making AI AK five G things <laughs> like they just like can't. Like first of all, that isn't a thing. Right, like yeah. they have to, they have to define what the thing is. So if they're going to make like you know automotive connector components. They have to redefine the deal to actually support such a thing in that state. Did you see the the clip of Joe Biden trying to talk to stoke some some fears about China? And he's like, "They're going to have the G fives before we do." <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, oh God, this, this is like another thing the CEO of Delta said at CodeCon. He was like, 5 G is going to be a game changer at the terminal." And Kara was like, "Why?" And he's like, "Once you get that Wi Fi bandwidth." And I was like, "No one, literally, no one knows what this means." <laughs> like everyone is so deeply confused. So Neil, I, the thing that's going to happen is 5G is going to enable a complete and perfect understanding of Section 230. <laughs> <laughs> it's Section 230 is my personal nightmare. Look, I set this goal on Twitter. This is going out on Friday. You still have time. Your goal for the week mm-hmm. is to find one friend mm-hmm. and explain to them mm-hmm. that platforms versus publishers was the old law from a, from Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. This is true. Stratton Oakmont, the, the, the firm in Wolf of Wall Street, sued Prodigy because users on Prodigy were making fun of them. And the court found that since Prodigy did any moderation, that they were the publisher of the content and could be held liable for it, which is insane. So then Section 230 was passed to overrule that decision and give pat- platforms freedom to moderate. Just go tell someone that story. Be like, do you remember Wolf of Wall Street? That firm is involved in a, in a massively consequential internet law decision that was superseded by Section 230, which explicitly gives platforms the freedom to moderate without being called the publisher. Just say that phrase. And then maybe you can watch Wolf of Wall Street again. That's a great movie. Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, right? Like You can mm-hmm. just go watch that movie together, and you've learned something about internet law, and you've watched a great movie. Just do that for me. That's your goal for the week. All right. We're going to have – we're going to take a break. Megan Frogmanesh is going to give us a little scene report of all the biggest game news from E3, and we're going to come back and dig into some of it. Let's take a break. 
Hello, I'm Megan Frogmanesh, and let's talk about E3. So first off, we were missing one of the big three this year. Uh, Sony decided to not come. That meant no presence at the press conferences, no presence on the show floor. I'm like pretty sure they put a bar where their booth usually would be, which actually was kind of nice. Overall, I'd say the year was kind of weird too, because as somebody who's been going for the last five years, there was actually a lot of space on the floor. Uh, it felt like a very empty E3, a lot fewer people, I would say. But in terms of the big announcements, so there are a couple things that I think were pretty interesting. Um, at the Xbox conference, we finally had the announcement of George R. R. Martin's collaboration with Dark Souls creator from Software. So the game is called Elden Ring, which is not the catchiest title, um, but I think it seems pretty promising. Um, so far, it's like a fantasy epic kind of thing. We got a trailer and that's about it. More exciting though, so Keanu Reeves is going to be in Cyberpunk 2077, which if you don't know what that is, uh, it's the latest project from CD Projekt Red. They made The Witcher 3 and a bunch of other good games. So they actually had Keanu Reeves come on stage during the Xbox conference to talk about this, which was pretty fucking good and wild. If you haven't caught the video yet or the clips of it, you should totally watch it. Alongside that though, alongside our beautiful Keanu Reeves, we also got a release date. So the game is coming out in April, 2020. Up next, we had Bethesda. Um, I would say probably the biggest thing that you should take away from Bethesda's conference is that Arcane has a new game coming out called Deathloop. Uh, remember that Arcane made the Dishonored series. Deathloop is sort of about two assassins struggling to kill each other. Um, honestly, it just looks like a really rad game about time travel. Not usually my jam, but I'm into the idea of just, you know, murder. I guess. So Ubisoft also announced that they have a new Watch Dogs game coming out. It's called Watch Dogs Legion, and the whole thing is that you can be NPCs, basically anybody you want in the game. Uh, the big hit from that presentation was that you could play as an old lady. I guess she's a retired assassin and beats people with her purse, and I'm sure, you know, more serious things. Moving on to Square Enix, some really cool stuff here. So the Final Fantasy VII remake has been absent from E3 for probably four or five years now, I want to say. Um, but they've come back in a pretty big way. They've announced a ton of news in the last like month and a half or so. Not at the show, but at a concert before their actual press conference. Square Enix announced that the first game in Final Fantasy VII Remake is coming next year. Yes, you heard that right. There's going to be more than one. Uh, the wild thing about this series, because it's now a series, is that we don't actually know how many games are going to be in it. Also, the first game is only going to focus on Midgar, which if for anybody who's played the Final Fantasy games, or at least Final Fantasy VII, you know that that's like maybe the first like couple hours of the game, but they're really blowing this up into this whole experience. I actually got the chance to play it at E3. Uh, Andrew Repster was kind enough to give it to me after I threatened his life. And it's pretty fucking good, I'd say. You know, there's something really special, I think, about seeing a game you grew up with as a kid, uh, especially one that was like so low poly when it first came out, like just blown up into this very dynamic, cool experience. So far, the gameplay feels really good. That being said, how are they going to turn two hours of gameplay into a 40-hour or so game? I have no idea, but they promise it's going to be a standalone release. Other than that, so let's talk about Nintendo. So, uh, saved the best for almost last. They are making a sequel to The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. We don't know anything about it other than the fact that uh, it looks good, you know, looks like the first one, and obviously Breath of the Wild was an excellent game. But also just like a lot of exciting stuff. Um, Luigi's Mansion 3 is coming. Weirdly enough, uh, it inspired a kind of star of its own. So there's a whole thing where Luigi has like a goo ver I don't to be honest, I don't know what the deal is. It's it's called Gooigi. Andrew Webster actually wrote about this and got Nintendo to comment on what he tastes like, which is a weird thing that I just said. They say coffee. To be honest, my guess would have been Lysol from the way he looks, but whatever, it's Nintendo. They have to be very family friendly for everything. 
Other than that, uh, Link's Awakening is coming out this year. Uh, the Witcher 3 is coming to the Switch, which is honestly wild because I can't imagine how that huge game is going to fit on that tiny console. It took up so much room on my PlayStation. So other than that, Nintendo has announced a bunch of smaller titles. We actually have a pretty good round of posts that pushes everything into one post because I don't have the patience to sit here and read it all off. Overall, though, a good E3, I would say. Um, a little quieter than most, but I feel like the lineup we saw was pretty solid. So that's it for me. Uh, be good. I love you guys. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Paul, every week, my man. Yeah. You do a thing. Same name, renowned in the podcast world for its consistency. I saw Nick Qua, who writes the Hot Pod newsletter at Code. He was like, mm -hmm. man, no podcast has ever been as consistent <laughs> as y'all. The weird thing is we introduce it a different way every time. So <laughs> we really got to work on that. <laughs> the segment is called Skate 4 is not a joke. Do I look like I'm laughing? <laughs> By the way, Nick Qua did not say anything about us being consistent <laughs> because I have no idea what the hell you just said. <laughs> Skate 4 is a video game that could exist <laughs> if EA didn't hate people and want the world to burn. Um, uh, if you if you might be familiar with Skate and also its sequels, Skate 2, and the much-beloved Skate 3, yeah, which came out in the Xbox 360 era. Yeah. There's still no Skate 4. Uh, EA had the temerity to make a joke at the end of their presser about there not being Skate 4 just to rub it in. So they know. They know we want Skate 4. Yeah. And then they make fun of us for wanting yeah. Skate 4. It's not a joke, is what I'm saying. It's not funny. You know, <laughs> make Skate 4, please. You know what this reminds me of, Paul? Uh, the For like the past, I swear to God, decade, um, every time uh, Phil Spencer would get on the stage for an Xbox announcement, he'd be wearing like a like a Battletoads t-shirt. And mm. like they were they just, just really just like... Milk at every piece of like hype they can get out of that franchise before they finally release the game. Mm -hmm. I just realized that I used the phrase milk, and so he's milking the toad, which is wrong. But they finally released it. So do you just have to wait five years? That's how long it seems like it took I've, for Battle Toads. I have, I have waited at least five years. Yeah. It's been very many years. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. I guess now that they're joking about it, maybe, maybe now we're on the five-year timeline. Yeah, to, they're just going to tweet success. it out. They're just going to tweet you know, it out. Valve should definitely announce Half-Life <laughs> in a tweet. All right. Let's do a little. Dieter, I know you're super excited about Zelda. All of the Zeldas. There are three. <laughs> yeah, like five of them. There are three Zeldas to be excited about. They've remade Game Boy game, and it is the cutest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. It's like moving around little diorama characters. There is the... Uh, insane Zelda game where they gave it to somebody else and you have to like kill things in tune to the beat of the music and that looks like fun and everyone seems to love it and that's available right now for the Switch and then they posted a teaser trailer for a sequel to Breath of the Wild they're probably just going to use the same engine because of course they are because they spent a lot of money making that engine and 
Ganondorf is there and he looks real mad. And uh, it's just, whew. <sighs> I, yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. But sometimes Nintendo puts out a trailer for a Zelda game and it doesn't come out until the next console generation. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I know they already, they already made the engine. Yep. It looks like they already got the same character models. So that's good. Yeah. They've, they've already made a cutscene. That's what the trailer was. I just was. don't want to get, I don't want your, you to be hurt. Like I have been hurt by skateboard. <laughs> look, <laughs> look, I'm also, I'm, I'm still recovering from the fact that they had to completely reboot Metroid. Um, mm. uh, Metroid 4, which uh, Metroid Prime. So I'm so bummed about that. But fundamentally, I have decided I will no longer get mad about video game delays because if yeah. there's a video game delay, it probably means that there is a better chance that the people making that video game aren't being forced to do crunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And crunch is a huge problem in the video game industry. We've been writing about it. Megan has been writing about it forever. It's getting increasingly worse instead of better uh, from what I can tell. And uh, yeah, so you know what? Delay your game. It's fine. We'll be yeah. okay. Yeah. Do you just keep grinding on the original Breath of the Wild? I have put so yeah. many hours into the original <laughs> Breath of the Wild. <laughs> and then we'll just wait for the next one. Yeah. All right. There was hardware news at E3, though. Yeah. Microsoft said some Xbox stuff. You want to walk me through that? Yeah. So Xbox Project Scarlet is a PlayStation 5. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, they're always, it's always like that. Yeah, it's always like, but they're, I mean, from what we know, because we don't know the actual specific specs, right? They're basically the exact same thing. It's like next gen. It, it, it's the AMD chips that like AMD just announced basically, right? CPU mm-hmm. wise. Yeah. And then a mysterious SSD that's faster than anything you could even imagine, which is yeah. exactly what, what the PS5 has. Um, which is really exciting. So they they said some dumb words. They said 8K, which I, <laughs> I mean, you you could probably play like um, Overcooked in 8K, uh, which would be a great time. Yeah. But uh, also frame rates up to 120 frames per second and variable refresh rate. They said ray tracing as well. Um, I believe that's announced for the PlayStation Five. I mean, it's it, they it's the same hardware and they're doing. The exact same. What if, they also said, <laughs> what if this is what AI 8K plus 5G means? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freak out. <laughs> if I get the end result of all this is I start building the Xbox in my parents' house. <laughs> Fine. So Fine. One, one possible Microsoft advantage is this xCloud stuff yeah. and the, the hybrid gaming cloud, which I feel like might be one of those things that doesn't really get delivered on time or work very well. So I, the xCloud thing, I don't think they did a very good job explaining what their idea is here. They're like, you can stream games, cool, mm-hmm. but if you happen to buy one of our super expensive Xboxes, it will stream the game from there instead of from the Xbox that we maintain for you in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And apparently, if you do it from your very expensive, fancy Xbox that you buy and put in your house, it's still going to have a spinning disc because we're never going to kill spinning discs ever, which is fine by me because we killed the headphone mm-hmm. jack and look how that turned out. Um, <laughs> then it'll cost it'll cost less to stream, apparently, or like cost less to get your game from your own Xbox than it would if you just subscribe to the whole thing. They haven't announced mm-hmm. pricing. I'm, I'm very curious to see what their model looks like here. I just, I feel, I'm skeptical enough that Google wholly focused on Stadia can pull it off. Yeah. If, yeah. If Microsoft is going to put all these things, like you're playing, you're playing what, oh, Halo. There's a new Halo coming out, right? Yeah. You're playing Halo and then you 
pl- press pause on Halo, you turn off your TV, and then like because and then you like play Halo from your laptop streaming over your local network, and then you go on vacation, and now you're using like a, a real xCloud server because and your save was in the cloud. Like that sounds like a cool world, yeah. right? Where you're you're getting the best of both worlds because you've got like a, a real console at home, but you when you're on the go, you have the same game. I mean, that'd be cool if they could pull it off. I have no indication that they could actually pull that off. Well, see, I think what you're missing is that the uh, it's an intelligent cloud and oh. an intelligent <laughs> <laughs> And with their intelligences combined, yeah. they can do yeah. anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's also some details about Stadia. Yeah. Was, right? Yep. So it's Tindal- 10 bucks a month. You can buy a Founders Edition, which will get you the $70 controller and a year of service for 130 bucks. So you... Save, you know, 60 bucks or whatever. And they're also going to have a free tier at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to be buying the games. But if people want to offer their own subscription services on top of Stadia, they will be yeah. able to do that. And I believe Ubisoft is like, ooh, subscription services. Why, well, yes, <laughs> let's do that. Which means that in addition to having to deal with the 50,000 streaming video services that are coming uh, from mm. Disney to Quibi to whatever uh, you're going to have to deal with uh, every single video game manufacturer deciding it wants to get in on this action and offer its own mm. subscription service. So welcome to hell, my friends. Or what if you don't? <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've, I've been trying to put together a list of like, I think Sta- Stadia might be really good for mm-hmm. Borderlands 3 cyberpunk and like gta 6 right like huge worlds that twitch reflexes are fun but they aren't make or break for the game right nintendo is nintendo there's only one place to play animal crossing fortnite best fortnite console best dark souls console Mm. like bet you know all the any any game that you know obviously fighting games anything that is like twitch reflexes is totally going to be xbox playstation 5 also like I'm curious what you guys think about the price of the Xbox Scarlet and PlayStation 5 because famously Microsoft screwed up by making a $500 Xbox One because they bundled Connect when Sony did a $400 PlayStation 4. Right. Uh, but but this is kind of a whole different world because this is like competing against like the Xbox One X and you know the PlayStation 4 Pro. So like are are both Sony and Microsoft going to land at $500? Yeah, they're going to illegally collude with each other and, and set the price at $500. <laughs> they're going to price yes. fix. It's, it's, like, it's definitely going to happen. No, I mean, I think it makes sense, right? They're both cutting-edge hardware. The previous generation consoles, no one's crying out, as far as I can tell, crying out that they're not getting what they need from them, right? Like, previous console generations, they went with display resolutions a little bit, right? Like, yeah. Xbox 360 got you to HD, Xbox One... Uh, I'm sorry, the Xbox One X and the PS4 Pro got you to 4K. Like, they're both saying 8K, but that's like, no one that's, even has that, yeah. right? Like And dumb. So I, I think they're going to price them high and call them the it's flagships, good, and you're going to get a bunch of stuff. You, you're going to get frame rates out of them. You're going to get maybe variable refresh rates, maybe, yeah. right, 144, 120. That's yeah. cool. Variable refresh rates and load times. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, to be honest... Like so, one of Google's things with Stadia is that games are going to start really fast, right? But obviously, so are the games on PlayStation Five and Xbox Scarlet. What I'm wondering is if you made a a, a game optimized for these ultra fast SSDs, 
like you know it's famous the famous sony example is is spider-man like you can see you can move through the world faster because we can load it into memory faster because our, our drive is faster if stadia is on older hardware doesn't have ultra fast ssds can they even run that game because like w- what we're looking at is stadia is a bit better than xbox one x but it's gonna be a lot less powerful than a playstation 5 or scarlet so it's Stadia either will have to upgrade or Stadia will be the low-powered service. I think maybe, I don't know enough about these architectures, I think they might be architected differently enough that that isn't a thing. Like Stadia might persist the entire world in one memory space but have you in it differently versus an Xbox that is like trying to load it on the fly as you move through it. But they, they can only give you each user so much RAM, right? Yeah, but they're Google. How much RAM do you want? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, maybe they can run it as at a loss like YouTube. Yeah, no, Who Google ha, Google has a history of providing more than enough RAM for all of your needs. Just look at the <laughs> Pixel Three. <laughs> all right, we'll see. I think I think that's a really inter- like. There's a part of me that thinks Stadia is uh, like really super compelling. Yeah, like I don't want to have a console in my life. I'll just pay the subscription fee for the service, or maybe I'll even play 1080p in the free tier. And there's like four games, and I'll be able to play them wherever I want. Like, yeah. I really only ever play like two games at once. Right? I like would, I it. would be, I would be telling you, I'm subscribing to Stadia right now, this minute, if it was coming to the iPad. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, Xbox controllers and PS4 controllers are coming to the iPad. Yeah. Well. So there's another way to go, mm-hmm. which is play your great iPad games using <laughs> a controller for once in your life. Uh, no, but like, if they said, like, what game do I play the most? I play Madden the most. If they said Madden's going to be on Stadia. Like my next generation console, I would I would just do Stadium and play it there and like play it wherever I want when I traveled, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing I want to do. Do I think that any hotel has the Wi-Fi I need to actually play Madden over Stadia? I do not, and like that's where it kind of like falls apart for me. Like the the true value I'd get out of it just like goes away because it's not local. Yeah. And then I think like, do I want to buy yet another round of consoles right now? I don't. But I also just bought a PS4 Pro like at the very end of its life cycle, so maybe that's just mm. me. But I think the what to buy, how much to pay conversation here is going to, it's just going to start to look radically different versus I don't want the stupid connect, so I'm buying a PS4. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of Vergecast. All of it. It's the most of it. Uh, <laughs> but do tell me if you want me to break these episodes up more because we can. It's just more of me talking, which honestly is not a very hard lift. Let me know. Or if you want us to just have one chat show, I'm actually very curious. Thank you to Megan for coming on and doing the E3 roundup. Very helpful. Uh, better than, than we did, I think. Um, <laughs> thank you to you two gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Why'd you push that button? Is going on right now. They just started a miniseries, Death Online. The first episode is about what happens on Facebook when you die. It's a lot. But it's kind of funny. But it's a lot. You should, like, they're in it. This is their first miniseries. They're trying it out. I think it's super interesting. Ashley's going to do an entire episode about a robot that died. People are very sad. Paul, that mm. seems right up your alley. i got to be honest with you. It seems, <laughs> seems tar- laser-targeted at Paul Miller. Check that out. It, that, that season is so good. Why don't you push that button? You can obviously listen to all the stuff that happened on the Code Conference on Kara's podcast, Recode Decode. You can listen to Pivot with Scott Galloway. Scott gave a presentation at Code that was incredible. Definitely start listening to that show. And obviously Recode Media with Peter Kafka. All available on the Vox Media Podcast Network. That's it. Rock and roll. Paul. Snip. Snip.